Well, well, well. Here we are again, hints and guesses. It is that time of year again, the year the the time of the winter solstice, the holiday season, the story of Christmas. And I want to talk about it. I want to talk about it directly. I want to talk about it mythopoetically. It's funny when I was a pastor, Christmas would, you know, be on our radar, I don't know, starting like in October or September. And I had so much resistance to it. I I don't I don't know what it I don't know what it was exactly. Another Christmas uh sermon, another advent series. Maybe I mean as I'm thinking about it now, maybe something in me was just out of alignment. I think that probably was the case. Something in me was out of alignment, which is exactly what the story is about. Something is out of alignment in the world. Something is waiting to be born in the world. Something, uh, there's a, a pregnancy in the cosmos that wants to come forth in the world in some way. And something new is born. But the kind of religious culture we live in and the kind of American religious culture we live in, it feels so polar opposite in many respects. Actually, nothing new is going to be born in the world or what we call um, new things in the world are just new possessions, new phones, new versions of the same kind of bullshit stuff that we collect the same technologies I don't know um, and they're just simply replaced by the next gadgets and trends of 2018 and 19 and whatever so what's going on with this stuff and what is the story about and in some ways, what I want to talk about right now is the birth of God in the soul. I don't know where I heard that phrase recently. Actually, it may have been my wife. She may have been quoting something that Meister Eckhart talks about, or perhaps James Finley. The birth of God in the soul, the birth of God uh, in, in the human soul, maybe in the soul of the world, is at the very heart of this mysterious narrative and what would happen if we listened mythopoetically to this text what would happen what wants to happen what is slouching toward Bethlehem waiting to be born in Yeats's apocalyptic poem because we live in that kind of age we live in that kind of time and in fact there seems to be so much urgency around uh, evil, terror, darkness, shadow, egotism, ethnocentricity, um, a total denial of the ecological nightmare that is no longer at our doorstep or on the horizon. It's here. It's here and now in the in our present lives 
even if we can watch TV and or look at our phones and ignore it for a little while, it's here. And maybe what I'm asking, maybe what I'm asking when I say something like the birth of God and the soul, maybe I mean the birth of Christ consciousness. And for a while, I, I heard that phrase several years ago, and it kind of bothered me just partly because I don't even, I, I didn't know what was meant by it. But now maybe I would understand that to mean um, a kind of divine consciousness rooted in uh, an incarnational mystery, meaning Christ consciousness is the consciousness, perhaps, that, that the divine is present in all things, even in the birth of a child, even in the birth of a bastard child, meaning a kid born in unusual parental circumstances, out of wedlock, we would say. Yeah, even there, even there in, in the stories we look down upon, we would never act like that. Our kids would never act like that. Our kids would never be caught in a morally compromising external situation. Um, yeah, even there. Perhaps the Christ consciousness is waiting to be born in the world. That's what I'm wondering about. And I think if we do not learn, and I don't care if you're religious or not, or you're a Christian or not, or you're spiritual but not religious, that's maybe a little how I might identify myself. Um, if we don't reimagine some of these fundamental narratives that, that keep coming up each year, not only will they be robbed of meaning, which they already are, but the culturally sentimental ways of reading these stories will dominate and in terms of what wants to be born on the soul it will shut it down rather than open up pathways for something new to emerge so I've been thinking about that I've been thinking about these elements of the story and um, as you know there are really two stories two birth stories one in Matthew and one in Luke and I'm a little less interested in historical context right this minute I mean, I've spent most of, I don't know, I spent 10 years of my life, that being almost my only question. Did these things really happen? And if so, um, how did they happen? Why did they happen? What's the cultural context? All that kind of stuff. And that has its place. But I'm much more interested right now in the mythic dimensions, the deeper dimensions of these stories that transcend even context and that transcend the, the, even the Jesus of history and, and the Jesus of church history, which are, those are two wildly different things. What are the mythic themes that the structure of our own psyches recognizes in these stories or the seeds of our future destiny are are watered in the depths of our own being. That's what I'm interested in. And I think they're there. I think they're there hidden, which is probably why they lasted and were told and retold. So let's begin with the very idea of a census. A census is being taken by the Roman Empire. And forget hi historical questions like, did it happen? I mean, technically, Judea was not a part of the Roman Empire during the reign of Herod the Great, so there really can't be a census, but who cares? 
there was a census going on somewhere in the world, and actually Rome was very well known for taking sensi? I think that's the, the plural. If not, we're going with it, sensi. Um, and to real, to go back in time a little bit, this is one of the very sensitive issues in the Hebrew Bible itself, whether or not a king, whether or not it's ethical or moral or righteous to take a census or not. Because what is a census about? Two things. What kids can I steal for war? And how many people can I tax? What's my income going to be? So it's usually rooted in warfare and income for the state. And that's the reason that Luke gives for putting these two kids in Bethlehem, in the, in the historic hometown of the original king of Israel, King David. They're there for a census. And what intrigues me about that idea is the way in which our culture right now in 2017 treats you and I and our kids, our babies, as numbers. Numbers that can be taxed. Numbers that can be manipulated for economic and material gain. And so much of our stuff, our information, is uh, bought and sold like a commodity. I mean, and we're all using these technologies like Facebook and whatever. And, and we have a, a presence on the world, which is uh, on, the, on the World Wide Web, that is, that provides census like information. How can it, turning, turning us, I think, into a kind of commodity, human beings as a commodity, and not only a commodity that can be consumed and bought and sold, but is needed to be in the process of buying and selling and consuming to make the whole cycle go round. More and more, more and more, we feel like a number. And we are a number. And we're a number for this economic machine of greed that destroys the living ecosystems of the earth and the ecosystems of our culture and the ecosystems of our family by turning it everything into what can be bought and sold and monetized and yeah that's the time that's the age that's the era that's the that's the time in terms of kairos not chronos that's the age in which something uh, is born into the world, some alternative, some breath of the divine uh, breathes again into the living landscape of the world and culture and society, the birth of God and the soul. And maybe it's precisely in an, in an era or an age where everything is um, part of the industrial growth society Maybe it's a, a, when, when, it, when, when it's like we're being consumed by the industrial growth society that we are feeding. 
The very thing that we're feeding is consuming us, in other words. It's at that moment, that critical kind of life or death moment, that God wants to be born again in the human soul. That some other deeper story of meaning in your life and in my life and in our family and in our culture and our society and in our world wants to be born again, is slouching toward Bethlehem, waiting to be born. And the story begins with a pregnant teenager um, who, in a very, very simple way, is, and, and kind of humbly, as if God is humble, whatever we mean by God is humble, is seeking the consent of Mary is not demanding this is not it doesn't appear this the the way she responds the way uh that this pregnant teenager says yes to the mystery of the divine being planted in the depths of her being in her body in her womb in her soul in her heart the way she turns toward that and says yes in a humble way i think is a window into the way in which god is born again in the world or is reborn again maybe if you are more attracted to that notion is almost seeking out the consent this is not a dominating god this isn't zeus this isn't hades snatching persephone that which is an amazing myth in and of itself i'm not against that but this is not hades snatching persephone and 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 forcing her down into the underworld this is uh, much more gentle Perhaps Mary has the capacity to say no, as you and I have the capacity to say no to the birth of God in our own soul, to the divine seed being planted and watered again in our own life. Uh, we have the capacity to say no. We have the capacity to say, I'm just going to fill out the census papers and be a part of the system and <laughs> work for the man. One time uh, when I was teaching high school, I did a survey of all the seniors and I just asked them to list three things that they uh, wish they would have known when they were freshmen. Because I also taught freshmen. I wanted to, I don't know, pass it on the freshmen. And one of them put, I wish I would have, this is a direct quote, I wish I would have stuck it to the man more, which <laughs> really makes me laugh that apparently he was sticking it to the man, but he, wish he, he wishes he could have done more of that. But yeah, something like that is what I mean. And I don't mean like in a, you know, just a adolescent rebellious sense. But in terms of walking away from this consuming engine of greed and meaninglessness and nihilism and narcissism, we can say no to that and yes, perhaps, to the very, very tiny, quiet places down in the depths of our own soul. In other words, the angel is coming to each of us in the stillness of the night, in, in, a, in the stillness of our own loneliness. Maybe you've heard that line from Hafez who says, don't surrender to your loneliness too quick. Let it cut more deep. So... The, the loneliness and isolation we feel 
let it work on us. And maybe it's in those moments as they, as it cuts more deeply as the, the loss of soul friends, Anamkara, to use the Celtic, the loss of soul friends is being supplanted by fake friends that, that can have a thumbs up or a thumbs down on our life who can like us or not like us, can click a heart or not click, click a heart. And we're calling this, we call this thing friendship as that feels lonely. Let that loneliness sink more deeply. And in the stillness of that quiet place, maybe the angel says something new of the divine wants to be born anew in your own soul. That's, I think, the mythopoetic, one of them, mythopoetic invitations right in the heart of this strange story. And interestingly enough, uh, although this is more in, in Matthew's version of the story, he uses Herod the Great as the, the setting. And, and Herod the Great seems to represent everything that is, a, um, it, or embodies the corruption of power and the absence of heart-centered kingship or leadership that's so needed in the world, that's so needed in a society gone mad. He, he himself has gone mad and is filled with paranoia. And not we know that from historical documents and also from the story. He's paranoid that something new might be born in the world. If he had Twitter, he would be tweeting up a storm about everyone who was speaking against his rule and reign, even in small and subtle ways. And so his act out in the world is to try to kill, to try to suppress, to deny, to cut off what wants to be born in the world. And is that not much like our um, governmental systems? And I know government is neither good nor, it's not, I, it's not a good or bad scenario. It's not totally evil. It's not totally good. Definitely not. But does it really have peace and goodwill toward human beings in mind at, at its core? Very rarely. In fact, it seems to have egocentric and maybe ethnocentric aims. That's the level of consciousness that it, that it sits at. And in fact, if anything gets in the way of its tiny slice of the pie, it wants to cut off and kill anything that's, that comes in its way. And it's in the middle of this darkness the darkness of the empire itself that the message or word comes to some magicians, magi we call them, stargazers, people who, who read the very patterns of nature itself, those who are sensitive enough to lay out at night and wonder. Those who, like Isaiah says, um, I looked up at the stars, who created all these? These kind of people who, by the way, are not Jewish. They don't appear to be Jewish in the, in the story. They're, they're coming from the outside. They're, they're the shamans of the ancient world who can read the patterns of the stars and wonder in what way is this related to the patterns in in our cultures and governments and economic um, 
engines. These are the shamans, the magicians, the stargazers, the kind of the, the the palm readers of the ancient world. And they somehow get the message, but they get the message from from nature itself. And they come to Herod and say, something new wants to be born in the world. Some new king, some new some new kingdom is pregnant, is wants to to emerge from the womb of the mystery of God. And Herod says, no, uh, and tries to cut it off, tries to suppress and deny and kill what wants to be born in the world. So what might this mean? Maybe we live in such an age where we too have Herods who are filled with egotism and and by the way, in my, in my last podcast, as just a bit of an aside, I was just musing. I don't know if it was a very good one. I made it in Jerusalem. I was just was more wondering out loud than anything else. But I was, I was thinking that the situation in the Middle East with all the tension and, and craziness and possible solutions, I was wondering about the emergence of a new consciousness. After all, that's, that's Einstein's famous quotation. No problem can be solved by the same level of consciousness that created it or the same consciousness that created it and that's what i was wondering about i'm still wondering about that does some new consciousness perhaps you could call it christ consciousness but does an is a new consciousness in the womb of the major massive tensions of the 21st century and might it be ready might it might, might it be at the very edge of birth and maybe the birth has already begun. And so I was um, thinking a bit about the the possibility of a new consciousness. And maybe it's worth saying that um, I'm combining a little bit of uh, the work of Ken Wilber and Bill Plotkin and what I'm about to say, but let's just talk about these memes of consciousness for just a minute. So let's start at the very base in what could be called egocentric consciousness egocentric, which is exactly what it sounds like. I, I, I. It's where we all start when we're four or five. We largely relate to the world as an I. Uh, it's a very us versus them. And the primary concerns, especially in, in pressure, are about safety, security, and fear. And there's a fair amount of fight or flight in there. This would be red probably in, in Ken Wilber's spiral dynamic terms. This is egocentric consciousness, and it's in all of us. Nobody gets out of it. It sits um, down uh, in, in the up and down nature of the spiral of consciousness. It sits down pretty low in the limbic area, perhaps. But if we're lucky enough, not everybody is, but if we're lucky enough to experience enough um, suffering and also um, perhaps be massaged by elders and teachers and leaders, then we develop into an ethnocentric level of consciousness. This would maybe be amber or something in, in Wilbur's Spirodynamics, ethnocentric, which is exactly what it sounds like, my ethnicity. And you can even make it smaller than that. My family, my tribe, my church, perhaps, especially if you're in a Protestant church, which is denominationally driven. This is ethnocentric consciousness. Who's in my group and who's not in my group? And to be honest, that's both of these things, egocentric and ethnocentric, dominate our politics. 
you know, Trump playing the song, uh, I did it my way. That's egocentric consciousness and, and getting enraged by people who, who won't thank him. That's egocentric consciousness. It's in you. It's in me. So I'm not trying to be, you know, up on my high horse here. I act like that too. And ethnocentric consciousness, you can hear it in phrases like, um, like, uh, America first, America first. And actually, if you were to unpack that, that probably means my version of America first, not even, um, not, not even, uh, all Americans, but my particular version of America, that, that should be first. That's ethnocentric consciousness. But if we're lucky enough for that worldview to begin to fall apart, what supplants it or transcends and includes it to use Wilbur's term is a kind of world centric consciousness. And maybe this is green. This is, um, your, your, your voice matters. You belong. There's a little more inclusion. Uh, I, you begin to think of yourself not purely as an American or as a Protestant Christian, but more and more people begin to be included in that. And even some of our economic systems are, are, are moving toward a more world-centric consciousness. We're starting to realize, at least a few of us, the paper products that we consume in our school systems affect the rainforests in Brazil and the migratory uh, patterns of butterflies and the carbon dioxide and oxygen that we breathe, and we begin to see the uh, much more world-centric consciousness and what a great gift. It certainly has its shadow side, no doubt. Check out um, Wilbur's book. I think it's like Trump and the um, in a post-truth world, something like that. Brand new book, really good. He'll show you the dark side of green consciousness. Um, but yeah, the world-centric. And what's beyond that? Maybe eco-centric? This might be orange. But you can see where this is going. Uh, uh, up into greater... Um, possibilities of of inclusion where where the meaning and shape of one's life is not situated in egocentric ethnocentric world centric but now in the entire globe itself we are the earth and are of the earth from dust we came and to dust we shall return and how we treat our lawns is also how we treat our children and how we treat our souls. And the emergence of an ecocentric consciousness, which sometimes at least a little bit has its roots in maybe what used to be called primitive societies. They, they had a much more harmonious and intimate relationship with the natural world. But now it's happening on a much larger scale. This is the emergence of ecocentric consciousness. And why am I saying all that? Because when I mean the birth of God in the soul, I mean any movement that expands, like widening circles. I live my life in widening circles. And perhaps the mystery of the divine is the very, um, is, is luring us out on a further um, trajectory into deeper and more intimate ways of being in the world. Maybe this is, maybe the process itself could be called the process of 
developing Christ consciousness. Maybe it's not like development, like it's all a matter of willpower. In fact, that's the mystery of the Christmas story. It's not a matter of willpower. Joseph and Mary didn't wake up and say, hey, let's have a Messiah. Let's, let's, you know, let's get this done. In fact, the mystery of the emergence of Christ consciousness is planted here and there among various people like magicians and like a pregnant teenager and and all of that happens beneath the shadow of very dark figures in history that are more interested in dominating controlling and killing everything in their in their way like caesar like herod in other words in the midst of the worst of times some other story or song is born in the world which brings me to the shepherds out there um Again, with the night sky, which is, huh. I mean, when was the last time you stood beneath the stars? When was the last time you felt the vastness of the universe itself? And what I think is so interesting about the shepherds, I mean, for one thing, they're, they're obviously not in the king's palace there's they're already it's already sort of an underdog kind of story but that's not what interests me so much that story's been talked about a ton what interests interests me now is that these are earth people these are kids who are comfortable laying down on the earth itself and looking up into the heavens that's their clock and are with the animals and have a have a, a a way of a kind of intimacy with the natural order maybe it's 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 precisely in those kinds of settings where the birth of god wants to be born anew in the soul in other words maybe the invitation for us for me is to forget the television forget the news forget the blurred screen as david white says this is the age of loaves and fishes where one good word is bread for a thousand so forget the news and read the stars forget the forget lying down on your couch and lie down on the earth after all where else would god be found especially in the mystery of the christian incarnation which basically says that god is enfleshed not only in a person, but in all things. So unless we feel ourselves again as earth, as part of the earth, sinking back into the source of everything, how are we supposed to hear the whisper of the angel coming again, saying, maybe something wants to be born anew in you. Maybe God wants to come in your soul, in my soul, in your heart, my heart, so maybe there's just like a little subtle invitation to return to our most natural ways of being during this time of year, during the winter solstice, during the very time period when things are the most dark and the most quiet. I mean, it's almost like a kind of archetypal mystery was at work when Constantine chose December 25th as the 
Christmas. I think he was the one that chose it, if I'm not mistaken. Whatever, this time of year. <clears throat> Maybe in a way he could not see, he's, he's choosing the very time when things are the most dark, which mythically means the most pregnant, in the womb itself. When the world itself is in the womb, and it's at that time when the new light begins to dawn, when a new star appears in the east, when we hear in the back rooms of our soul, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace and goodwill toward human beings. In other words, an age of world-centric, ecocentric, and maybe there's something beyond that, cosmocentric consciousness is waiting to be born. I'm telling you, this requires faith, the kind of thing I'm talking about. But I don't mean faith in doctrines. I don't mean faith in uh, prescribed beliefs. I don't mean you have to believe what I, I just mean. It requires faith to even think God or the mystery of God or the mystery of the divine wants to bring us into a deeper, more life-giving, more conscious awareness of the beauty and sacredness of all things. That's what the Christmas story is about at its very core, at its very bottom. So I guess my question right now is, what is slouching toward Bethlehem waiting to be born in the depths of our own soul, in the depths of our own heart, no matter how materialistic and industrial and mechanistic and greedy and paper thin <clears throat> and scary and apocalyptic and egocentric and tribal our world is right now. What subtle, quiet, mysterious nighttime gift is waiting to be born and, th and think about the magi coming the magicians they come bearing gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh in other words they can see something in this child that maybe the parents can't even see maybe that's maybe that's a, a definition of a shaman in the first place a magician a, a, a storyteller a a poet they can see what others cannot see the prophet can see what others cannot see and they see in the potential of this child and maybe that's the kind of consciousness that sees in the potential of every single child born in the darkness of this year in this month, this day, in this world, which sometimes seems hopeless, can see, no, 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 not only is this child the birth of God in the soul, but they bear gifts. They not only deserve gifts, but bear gifts and are given gifts that are brought back out into the world in some future time period. It's as if the, the Christ figure carries these treasures and it's his responsibility or her responsibility to bring these back out into the world for the benefit of all. That's actually what is meant by finding your soul anyway. Carrying the seeds of your deepest gifts out into the world, and that is in the middle of 
this Christmas story. So maybe the gold and frankincense and myrrh that rest in the, in the depths of your being, in the depths of my being, in the depths of your kids, maybe it's in it's this time of year where you catch a little glimmer of that and you begin to follow that thread. And you begin to say no <clears throat> to the way our culture wants to tell us who we are and give us a kind of false worth and categorize and label us. Meanwhile, the mystery of God is, is bringing some of those golden gifts out of hiding. Let me be more direct. May you bring the gift of who you are out into the light of day during the darkest time of year. Peace unto you.